0: Welcome to The Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Louisa Lim from the University of Melbourne Centre for Advancing Journalism. We're on air thanks to the Australian Centre on China in the World. This month I'm joining you solo without my co-host Graham Smith. That's because I'm in Auckland in New Zealand and what better opportunity to talk about the China policy... Of Australia's near neighbour New Zealand. Not quite beyond the ends of the earth but almost. So is New Zealand the canary in the coal mine when it comes to China ties or is it behind the rest of the world? To answer that I'm joined by two guests, writer and sociologist Seeming Mok and journalist Sam Sachdeva, national affairs editor of Newsroom, New Zealand's independent news website whose book, The China Tightrope, Navigating New Zealand's Relationship with a World Superpower, is just out. So Sam, let's start with you. Your book starts with this really startling episode in 2021, when two MPs are basically pushed out of the parliament, and they're from New Zealand's two biggest political parties, Jian Yang from the National Party and Raymond Huo from Labour. And they've been MPs for almost a decade, and it turns out the parties were given intelligence briefings about security concerns, given their relationship with the Chinese government. I mean, what does that mean? Did China place spies in New Zealand's top political parties?
1: I don't know if we can say whether that's the case, and and part of the problem is simply the lack of public information. This came out in 2021, as you say, via an independent news website, Politic, which had clearly been leaked some information, but there's never been a public discussion about it. So do, do I think they were sort of formal state agents? No, but clearly they have had a relationship with the Chinese embassy, potentially with the Chinese government, and there was obviously enough concern that both of these major parties felt like they needed to act and, and to move them out.
0: I mean, it seems bizarre because one of them, uh, Jen Yang, had this background in military intelligence, and that has been known since 2017, right? I mean, it's been reported on by New Zealand news outlets. How come
2: he was still in parliament? Because the guy is shameless. I. <laughs> 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 I can't I don't know why he just didn't quit for all those years as since the, the story was broken by Jamil Andalini and by yourself? By Mark, Mark, Mark Jennings. By Mark Jennings. Yeah. yeah. So the news was broken, it was a big story. It was just before the twenty seventeen election, uh, which the Labour Party ended up winning, so he wasn't in government anyway, um, once the fallout started coming together. And and just for an entire term he just hid, he just hid from the media. He wouldn't answer any questions. He'd be door-stopped by, you know, New Zealand's most prominent current affairs journalists, and he wouldn't come to the table. Um, he'd only talked to Chinese-language media. Um, he would only talk to mainland Chinese constituents. He he just he just went to ground, and um, it's as if he thought it would blow over. It was embarrassing.
0: Isn't the pressure from inside politics to do something about this? It seems. That the answer would be no. That he was allowed to continue.
1: I think it was it was convenient for both parties to sort of look look past this because there was one on each side. You know, an MP in each party, so there was no chance to have political leverage, I suppose, or point scoring and saying, you know, look, you guys have a problem. We need to deal with this. And another part of it is that I think both both men had been quite effective fundraisers for their parties, and. You know, in a system which relies so heavily on political donations, if you've if you've got someone who can bring the money in, and there's perhaps plausible deniability in terms of their affiliations with the Chinese state, then maybe you don't want to go probing into that too thoroughly, in case you do find something that forces you to take action.
2: It was no secret that both um, that both Gen Yang and Raymond were cosy with the Chinese government and had been for a long time. Um, it's just that. Um, At a certain period when they were entering Parliament and entering politics, um, it seemed like a much more benign thing to be tight with the Chinese government because we were in a period of... um I guess, engagement with China, um, there was a sort of optimism that engagement with China in the, in the early 2000s, for example, was really going to lead to some kind of change um, in politics in China. Um, it was, you know, it was the, 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 the Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao era. Um, they were seen as you know, potentially having possibilities for um, change, for opening. A lot more people were going to China, being exposed to what life was like in China, from New Zealand. The vibe was a lot better, right? But there's been a real vibe shift, hasn't there? And at a certain point, it was just very convenient for both parties to have a token Chinese uh, on their proportional representation party list, have them in parliament, and have be plugged into those fundraising communities. They were only the second and third um, MPs who had ever been in either of the major parties from the Chinese community. Um, and it just so happened that they were both from the mainland Chinese communities rather than any other Chinese communities.
0: So in your book, Sam, you call them metaphorical ATMs. I mean, were they really raising that much money? And where was that money coming from?
1: Look, I I think they were, uh, you know, and that's, that's certainly how they have been seen by some party figures, I think, so... Uh, look, I, I don't have the exact volumes to hand, but we'd be talking you know easily tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, and it is from some of these um, figures in the Chinese community business leaders, community leaders who, who have had an interest in, uh, in large part supporting the incumbent government of the day that we've seen that a lot of it tracks towards whoever happens to be in power. But there was a huge amount of, of, of value, financial value to the parties.
0: So, I mean, let's take a step back and look at New Zealand's relationship with China in context. One very strong factor driving it seems to be competitiveness with Australia. I mean, I was really struck by the fact that in your book, you mentioned that New Zealand established diplomatic ties with China just one day after Australia. I mean, how much of what happens um, in New Zealand China policy is either sort of riding on the coattails of Australia or happening sort of against it, so to speak?
1: Oh, yeah, incredibly so. I mean, we take so much of a stare from Australia. It's that big brother, little brother complex, right? So you're right, we were just just behind Australia on that. And then we've tried to make up for lost time in some respects. We have this history of, of it was the four firsts, and now it's up to five or six. And so among those, we were the first Western nation to sign a free trade agreement with China, the first Western nation to sign a uh, an agreement in relation to the Belt and Road Initiative. So there's this kind of sense that, yes, we don't want to be too far behind our, our uh, trans Tasman friends, our, our neighbour, but also that we want to sort of jump ahead where we can. And, and that's sort of been interesting, and that's been good for New Zealand, and it, it had been in the sense that the fta meant uh you know a huge amount for our exporters but there's been a recent sort of reckoning our foreign affairs minister anaya mahuta has said we've we have we have moved beyond the relationship of first we ha- we have to have a more mature relationship now and that's in a sense that there's not so many more firsts that are possible but actually there are downsides to being the first person to jump into any agreement and maybe we need to think a little bit more about whether it's in our interests to be signing up to things so quickly.
0: I was going to ask that. I mean, you know, the first Western country to sign up to the Belt and Road Agreement, this massive infrastructural project, which now a lot of other countries are um, criticising because they're calling it debt trap diplomacy. I mean, do you think that these kind of decisions were sort of fully debated and understood in New Zealand?
2: 2017 was um, this time in, in just general global history where the concentration camp stories hadn't really broken yet. you know. They were underway, um, but that was the reality check, that there had been a complete change in the way that you should conceptualise the Chinese government and the way that the direction it was heading was nowhere near the direction you had hoped it was heading. Um, but the New Zealand government at that time, um, in the, in, under John Key, Oh, actually, London Bill English, but it was the, the coattails of the John Key administration. He had been like the classic neoliberal uh, business guy, uh, very bullish on trade with China, very much part of the um, opening up China to the world um, approach. And I think it was just a continuation of the policies of the previous 10, 15 years towards China. Um, there was this idea, yes, we just keep going, we'll just keep going with it, and it will go in the direction we want, and um, we won't have to pay a price for it at the end. Um, Yeah, I don't think they thought about it too hard. I don't recall there being any huge public debate. We signed this memorandum of,
1: ra- of arrangement, and it was very vague. It was an agreement to work towards an agreement, and as I mentioned in the book, it's not really come to anything. There was, there was meant to be a detailed work plan, I think, 18 months later, and there is still nothing, and that's where, what, five, six years on, but there was certainly no sort of public discussion. Hey, what, do you, what does the New Zealand public think about this? Should we be involved? They just leapt into it and were like, yeah, let's do this. What could, what could go wrong?
0: But in many ways, those memorandum of understanding their propaganda wins for China and to have a Western country sign up, it was the beginning of selling the Belt and Road to the rest of the world. So, I mean, you have a background um, working in for human rights organisations and communications. How much do you think human rights has played a part in the New Zealand government's policy towards China?
2: Recently, a little more, but... Previously, very little, I would say. It's something that it's always, we will mention it to them in the meeting, you know, um, but it doesn't seem to be a factor in, in actual decisions that were being made, certainly uh, during that period. I remember um, I was in Beijing in, I think, 20, uh, 2006 uh, when they, they opened the New Zealand Studies Centre at Beijing University. Oh, they have a New Zealand Studies yeah, Centre? The New Zealand Studies Centre and... It was very hilarious to me because um, the foreign minister at that time was um, a politician called Winston Peters, who was still alive, um, but he had made his name um, as an anti-immigration, anti-Asian, nativist, populist Politician who essentially um, provoked a a racist backlash against Asian immigrant and Chinese immigrant communities in the 90s. Um, But he always held the balance of power under many of our um, proportional representation electoral systems. He sort of was situated in a kind of conservative middle zone. And he ended up um, the foreign minister of um, the Labour government of that period. And he delivered the opening speech. It was so funny to me going there and him standing up on that podium talking about how he loved the Chinese people, Chinese people so hardworking, <laughs> he was a big supporter of the Chinese community in New Zealand, this is a man who was directly responsible for so many of us being subjected to racist attacks in the 90s and abuse in the 90s on the streets of New Zealand. So it was, it was very ironic, but a, a real kind of marker of, of how people were just going with the flow at that time. That was um, just you know a few years before the Beijing Olympics and China was on a real charm offensive um, at that time and people were willing to overlook what was happening in Tibet and what was happening to dissidents, what was happening to petitioners. It was all just seemed like, in their mind, we can just put that aside um, because really China's going to open up because they're going to have the Olympics. And look, we've got a New Zealand Studies Centre at Beijing <laughs> University um, where they're going to study New Zealand. I don't know.
0: New Zealand wasn't really the only country that was subject to that kind of magical thinking. But I mean, coming back to the question of propaganda and propaganda value, that seems to be one area where there's really been an encroachment on New Zealand um, freedoms, particularly when it comes to the Chinese language press in New Zealand. Yesterday, there were members of the Chinese community talking about how every single Chinese language newspaper in New Zealand is controlled by people who are sympathetic to Beijing. Is that, is that really the case?
2: Yes, I think it is the case. Um, every dissident um, pro-democracy paper has shut down. Uh, and in terms of the TV news, uh, there was a TV station that was started in the 2000s called World TV, and it was started by the Hong Kong and Taiwanese migrant community. And uh, the PRC levers um, kind of took over through, the, through being officially owning Hong Kong, um, and shoved out the Taiwanese, and so now they know, know Taiwanese content. Um, that's just one example. But I think the main um, censorship issue, or self-censorship issue, is that the main mode of distribution of Chinese language news among the, the Chinese community, the Chinese language-speaking community, is of course WeChat, and... Um, as a Chinese-owned platform, um, any any content can be censored on WeChat, and so even originally quite independent online sites that were, I remember uh, it was started in the 2000s, a uh, site called Sky Kiwi. It was started by students. The international student community, it was very organic, scrappy uh, media outlet that reported on local issues and tried to translate English language media stories into Chinese so students could know what's going on, and it's become fairly self-censored and quite controlled. What you find is the editorial um, leadership of the different Chinese language outlets um, become absorbed um, into the official um, Chinese government journalist society. They have to go to Beijing and do trainings. They're, it's almost that they're official parts of the of the government media apparatus.
0: And Sam, you are were- um, the other day, you were telling me these examples of joint ventures where the New Zealand media had set up joint ventures with Chinese language sites, and that these had been censored without anybody even noticing or knowing about it?
1: Yes, there have been a few high-profile examples. The main one, I think, was the Chinese New Zealand Herald, which was an independent uh, publication set up, I think it might have been in the 90s, but then was uh, turned into a joint venture with the New Zealand Herald, which is uh, New Zealand's largest or one of its largest newspapers. And it transpired that stories involving Anne-Marie Brady, who's a New Zealand academic who has has done a lot of research on um, China's foreign interference work, uh, whole sections of the stories about her, the English language stories that were taken from the New Zealand Hair website were just cut cut to pieces... And there wasn't that awareness, and I think it was an academic or someone who brought attention to it. And it was it was you know censorship, and it's censorship happening in New Zealand, which is not something we think of when we talk about our media. You know, New Zealand rates very highly on on press freedom um, indices, and that's that is true for the most part. But there's this kind of blind spot, I guess, where you know most New Zealanders don't don't speak Chinese, don't read or, or watch these outlets,
2: and and don't know what's going on.
0: I mean, it seems extraordinary that this censorship could happen and nobody knows.
2: The, the Chinese population of New Zealand is, is very diverse. More than 50% of the Chinese population here um, are China-born, but a large chunk of them will will also be like have come here when they were young and have grown up in the school system here and actually aren't literate in Chinese. So it's really only a particular chunk of the Chinese population, maybe like a third of, of the Chinese population here, who are quite reliant on Chinese language media. Um, but of of that population um, there will be another smaller chunk who really don't read any or listen to any English language media but they'll like all the the Chinese language um, dependent or majority dependent um, population it just it really creates a bubble it creates a bubble that is impenetrable by people who don't read Chinese it means that that population, that community can't really politically participate in a meaningful way because there isn't really a common basis of reality uh, in terms of the the political discourse. Um, There's not like a common sense of understanding of what is going on in society. And I think that is dangerous and it is unfair. And it's really, it's damaging to the Chinese community as a whole.
1: I I would say there are some some small but promising signs in this regard so earlier this year our public broadcaster radio new zealand announced that it is setting up an asia unit and as part of that they're going to have chinese language reporters producing chinese language content primarily for their website not for radio bulletins and i think that is in part because of the awareness that you need an independent source of of news and chinese language news that there you can't trust or have confidence that these outlets that do exist are going to report everything that the community needs to know so yeah it's sort of running on the smell of an oily rag for now I think but Mm. they're kind of dipping their toe in the water and that's I I view it as encouraging I think it's a early step but it's a sense that you know our our public service media and the government which helps to fund it are realising that they are going to need to step in and, and lift their game in this respect.
0: A sign of alarm, maybe, at yeah. the inroads that have already been made on, on the Chinese language media.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think it was it was a really clear policy response, and it was really encouraging. The Chinese language media here, it's not just you know doing Chinese government propaganda. It's also just incredibly right wing. You know, <laughs> um, so just even understanding basic stuff about what is going on in terms of social policy, in terms of you know what the government is actually doing, what the interest rates actually are. I think it will be really helpful for um, just establishing basic general knowledge about New Zealand society for people living here who are like literally part of society but are finding it hard to be included in it.
0: So, Sam, you mentioned the academic Anne Brady, and she wrote this report called uh, The Communist Party's Magic Weapons about United Front encroachment in New Zealand that has been incredibly influential and also quite polarizing and she has t- talked of new zealand as the canary in the coal mine and she's had break-ins to her office and all kinds of things have happened to her i mean how much of this sort of debate about chinese influence in new zealand is due to that you know that report and her raising awareness
1: i mean pro- probably all of it or very close to to all of it she has been hugely influential and um you know, I think that's mostly for the better, maybe in in some aspects for the worst, but she she has driven a lot of this, and, you know, maybe there were some people talking about this previously who, who had an understanding of the issue, but the The very high profile nature of of that paper and and the the way it was released and the way she's spoken about it has brought a lot of this into the light and i think even people who you talk to are skeptical about some aspects of her work will give we'll give her credit for that and say you know if you look at what we're talking about and that level of awareness that we have now it is it is so far ahead of where we were five six years ago when when that paper came out
2: yeah i agree it was it was hugely influential And I think what really drove it home to the wider public was the incidents where her officers were repeatedly broken into and potentially her cars tampered with. Uh, And that was a real wake-up call, I think, for the general public as well as um, political establishment. Because we knew that dissidents, Chinese dissidents, were having these experiences already. Like We'd known that for years. But suddenly it happened to a white lady, and if she wasn't safe, well, then who the hell was?
0: One thing that really struck me reading your book was just the size of trade with China. That New Zealand alone, this country of five million people, has a bigger trade in dairy than the whole of Europe. And that China accounts for a third of New Zealand's trade. I mean, are the concerns about that level of? economic dependence
1: yes yes absolutely i think it, we've been talking about it for a while but the messages are getting louder from government ministers that you can't be that dependent on any one market and this is not about china although there are aspects about the nature of china's governance and its system that that makes it more of a problem but if you're sending a third of of what you export to to any one country that that's a problem as we saw you know during COVID 19 we had uh you know the borders shut nothing could get through. And for example, I think our, our rock lobster industry sends 96%, or it's upwards of 95% of its product to China, and they were absolutely screwed. Um, they, the, the government had to step in and sort of bail them out. And that really shows that the, the, the problems, I think, of, of over-reliance on a, a particular country to, to sort of uh, make your exporters wealthy.
0: Simming from reading the press do you think that the political class in New Zealand is changing its view towards China or is there still kind of quite a lot of concern about ruffling this massive trade partner?
2: Yeah I mean I think that like the current administration has walked has has really walked the tightrope as well as it could have I think. I feel like they did start to take concerns. significantly more seriously in the last few years while trying to like, say that they have an independent foreign policy. New Zealand has a strong anti-American tradition. We left the um, ANZUS like, nuclear alliance with the US while also remaining friends, right? Um, we have this weird thing about Australia where we are trying to follow Australia and copy them all the time but want to be different from Australia. Um, <laughs> so our official foreign policy is meant to be kind of independent. We're part of the Five Eyes alliance but we reserve the right to like make separate statements.
0: And I mean, when you say you reserve the right to make separate statements, it does appear to be the case that often the other four eyes are making critical statements and New Zealand is missing from that.
2: That's right. Uh, and they make a, a sort of a similar but slightly less critical statement. <laughs> um, that And that's the Labour Party right now. And I feel like the National Party would probably be worse. I think they would probably be putting trade and commercial considerations um, much more at front of mind compared with human rights. Uh, they traditionally don't have a very good track record on caring about human rights. So this is about as good as we can get in this current, in this current political climate, um, which isn't super promising.
1: I, I think the change of government in 2017 was pretty critical in terms of seeing a slightly sharper view of China because National had been so baked into thinking of China purely in terms of trade, the economy, the benefits of the FTA. So having new ministers in there who are perhaps more receptive to hearing about the other elements and reasons for concern from officials, we have seen a bit of a a sharpening. And I think if you look at what our spy agencies are doing, they're being much more open, albeit vague, in terms of releasing guidelines around foreign interference and the risks for academics and and politicians. So there's more of it is going into the public discourse, and that's from a pretty low bar, but things are starting to, to creep up a little bit.
0: But at the moment, you do not have a foreign interference transparency scheme like like Australia or the US has had for a very long time reporting requirements. And I mean, that does seem to be one quite major loophole.
1: Yes, oh entirely. And we and were having a broader debate in our, our country at the moment around the donation system and donations transparency. And part of that is overseas donations. So, And
0: part of that is donations from China, right? I mean, you talk in your book about some quite, Peculiar donations, right?
1: Yes, yes. So there's uh, the Inner Mongolia Horse Riding Company, I think, which gave $150,000 or something like that to the National Party. And so they are a New Zealand company, New Zealand domiciled, but... Chinese-owned. So this is a gap in the system that, you know, the this government a few years ago said, yes, we're banning overseas donations, we're taking action but actually they still have that loophole there where if you're a New Zealand registered company, you can still give as much money as you want. So we're missing on that respect. It's, it's slightly different but we also don't have any independent sanctions legislation so we have no ability to sanction for human rights abuses outside of the United Nations. And when you've got China as a member of the P5 on the security Security Council, you're really not going to get any action on, on China or anything like that. So there are these quite obvious gaps in our system.
0: And to mean, you mentioned there's a strong anti-American sentiment here. How does that kind of play into that geostrategic trends?
2: I mean, that's just assuming that general sentiment um, has influence over New Zealand's foreign policy. I'm not sure it, mm-hmm. it, it super does um, in a lot of ways. But um, I think that New Zealand likes to think of itself as, as this progressive society that um, is against American imperialism and is against racism. And how that plays out is quite interesting when you look at the approaches of the two main political parties. Um, the, the Conservative Party, it's called the National Party, is you know going to probably be more friendly towards China and care less about human rights. And it's also historically more racist. But it's great... You know, car that it can play is that. But we're close with China, so we can't be racist. We have this. We have all this great fundraising activity in Chinese communities. We're not racist. We're going to have it. Well, I'm sure they'll get another Chinese MP soon. We're not racist. Um, whereas the Labour Party has a more kind of progressive brand, and that's probably one of the reasons why it was able to turn the national policy around a little bit on China, because it was less vulnerable to um, ac- accusations of racism. Um, because it had like a better track record than the previous government, and it also had you know inroads and connections with Chinese communities. But in, you know they both both of their relationships with Chinese communities are very shallow, um, and don't really go beyond the mainland Chinese community, which is only half of the Chinese population of New Zealand. Um, and so that it it means that the the parties um, have diff- like they draw on their political capital in different ways in how they sort of racialize the approach to Chinese policy. The, the hope, I guess, for everyone is that we can formulate a principles-based independent policy when it comes to China without having to worry that people are going to say you're being racist or you're not being racist enough. New Zealand's still a racist society. There are people who are, who are really against Chinese interference because they are racists. Um, and they, they think of any kind of foreign, you know, large power who is not a white power as a big threat. Uh, and that's a real thing. You know um, but it's also a real thing that um, the commu- the Chinese communities themselves, we don't want the Chinese government to be telling us what to do. We don't want the Chinese government trying to control us and for neither of the parties to be listening to us, that's racist <laughs> <You know? laughs> But yeah like New Zealand's own mythos of itself as as you know anti-imperialist and progressive it's it's pretty overcooked. It's a foundational myth. But it really only guides foreign policy to the extent that we have these, these we actually have specific legislation, like the, the anti-nuclear legislation that, takes, that took us out of the ANZUS alliance. And that's kind of like a strange kind of red line that in some ways is kind of fading in political memory. People, are, you know, people hate what America's becoming.
0: Sam, at the end of your book, you quote a New Zealand academic Jason Young, who says... What is New Zealand's China policy? It's not that clear. I mean, how would you characterize New Zealand's China policy?
1: Oh gosh, <laughs> great, great question. And I don't know if I have a great answer. It is a little bit of a, a muddle, and um, that is part of the problem. It's it's maybe strategic ambiguity in a sense. <laughs> and there was a there was a recent speech from our foreign affairs minister that was billed as. Uh, it was to the diplomatic corps in New Zealand and it was meant to be a scene setter for New Zealand's foreign policy, but what struck me is that you had China hawks relatively speaking and China doves coming away, each convinced that she was sharing their sense of um, of perspective on, on issues like the the AUKUS military pact and so on, so it's I think there has been a a a heightening of, of concern in, in some areas and that's more acutely felt on the intelligence side and the foreign affairs side, but then in terms of trade, business, we are still stuck a little bit in that golden era. So it's it is a, a tight a tight rope, which is obviously in the book's title, but it's a yeah, it is a bit of a mess. I don't know if I've answered that well, but that's that's part of the problem, I think, that it's just really hard to get a clear read on it.
2: Yeah, the strategic ambiguity comparison is like it's actually a good one, isn't it? Because New Zealand is um, We have the classic conundrum of like the small vulnerable nation, right, who thinks that it has principles um, but also needs to survive.
0: And I did note that you said um, we would like to have a principled China policy. Does that mean it is not particularly principled at the moment?
2: I think you'd be quite hard pushed to find um, a principled China policy among small countries that are quite heavily reliant on trade with China in terms of human rights. When did we last have a principled China policy? I'm not sure. But the global dynamic has also shifted. I remember when we had an independent dissident newspaper and they sponsored the visit of the Dalai Lama and brought him to Auckland. This was in the early 2000s, and, or was it, it might have been the late 90s, actually. And they packed out Eden Park, which was Auckland's biggest, at the time, rugby football stadium. With people coming to see the Dalai Lama, dissidents were there, everyone was there. I can't imagine that happening now. That we, you know, we would be like hurting the feelings of the Chinese nation by hosting the Dalai Lama in New Zealand. That would be unthinkable. Imagine. Maybe what was not principled back then is is principled now. <laughs> um, the goalposts have shifted like a lot.
0: So, is there anything coming up, sort of, to look for in in New Zealand policy? Any shifts or decisions, or something that might be a goalpost, or do you foresee that, in fact? this sort of useful strategic ambiguity will continue, as will, you know, the trade.
1: I think, to a degree, the debate over whether or not New Zealand should play any role in, in AUKUS, the AUKUS Security Pact, that has kind of become a bit of a a totem to look to, look to in terms of where does that lead us to in terms of our relationships with the us as opposed to china and there is a lot of angst i think within the government about this and i don't know that ministers have a clear view on what they want to do because i think if we were to have a role in the non-nuclear aspects i think it's called pillar two so advanced technologies does that align us more in a military sense more closely with the united states and does that mean we are moving away from china uh, so there's that. I think uh, we've we've seen a bit of funding, initial funding, small funding, but it is there on foreign interference. So if there is any more work towards that, there is occasional discussion about foreign interference legislation. There's there's been nothing really tangible, but if we were to see any movement in that space, that be it might be another tipping point. But it's hard to say. I mean, there are these kind of a few of these things that sort of float around. But I'm not sure I see something that's going to at at least that's in the works at the moment that is going to decisively move us in one way or another.
2: And we've got um, we have a general election coming up this year, um, and it's very finely balanced at this point um, in the polls. And do you know what the national party's China policy is, Sam? It is it is about
1: as clear and coherent as the the current Labor government's policy, which is to say, not really at all. It is it is it is confusing because um, John Key, who we've talked about, uh, former National Prime Minister, is is probably the biggest China apologist slash advocate, whichever way you want to frame it, in in the West, and he acknowledges that that he is an outlier when you. Uh, compare him with the world leaders from the same period. So I think there are some of the National Party who still look to John Key, who is one of you know our most popular prime ministers in, in recent decades, and take their lead from him. But then there is uh, you know, some who have a more traditional conservative view that we see in other conservative parties that is sort of sceptical about China, about its human rights record, and the sort of threat that it, it poses to the, the world order. So I think they're still figuring that out. My sense is that we might see a slight softening of New Zealand's position and maybe more of a focus on the benefit of the economic relationship, but it is hard to say.
0: But I mean, in Australia, we are seeing uh, more investment in the Pacific and that's particularly in response to China stepping up its role in the Pacific. Given that that's happening, is New Zealand really gonna step back?
1: No, no, I don't think so. And successive governments have had this this mantra that they cling to that we adhere to an independent foreign policy. And it's redundant because pretty much every country is going to have an independent foreign policy. But what some people have talked about or have have conflated it with is that we should be be neutral, that we should step back from these things, that we shouldn't be involved, that we can rely on our geographic isolation and just kind of sit this whole US-China conflict out or sit out the... Uh, strategic competition and we've had a few ministers now the defense minister andrew little say that no you independence isn't isolationism that it means we will make decisions that are in our own interests but we will work with other countries and other nations so i just i don't think it's viable or desirable we have very strong views in new zealand around the importance of human rights and the need to uphold those So this idea that we should sort of sit back and let things happen in the Pacific or or let things happen to the international rules-based order that affect us greatly without doing anything is is nonsensical and a a non-starter in my view.
0: And a final question, I mean that idea that New Zealand is the canary in the coal mine, that China's encroachments on New Zealand have been bigger than anywhere else, do you guys buy into that?
2: Mm, I want to throw it to you, Zemming, So I want to think about this. Well, I think that New Zealand is a lot easier to influence because we're just real small, we're easy to buy, the populations are not very big. Um, I don't know if there's been a bigger impact here than, in say, in Australia or the US in terms of how stringently institutions have been captured um, or you know, student populations have been mobilised or weaponized. We've seen a bit of um, confrontation here. Because when something something happens here, we get a little incident. It's huge news. Like people get really shocked that you know a mainland Chinese um, stooge would go and physically assault a Hong Kong protester on, at, on the Auckland University campus. People be were really shocked that you know an academic would have her office broken into or her tyres let down. There was a period where things were happening that seemed very unacceptable to the New Zealand public, and there was like a bit of concern. I know I think within the, the Chinese diplomatic scene um, that they had to maybe reassess or repivot back to a more conservative approach to trying to bully people. Because <laughs> <laughs> the thing with New Zealand is that even though you know, even though we're vulnerable and easy to influence, um, it's actually also easier for communities to fight back. And actually, um, get the ear of people who are making decisions and power, because we're actually all very closely connected. You know, you might have noticed yourself you came here, and like, you know, we just know everyone because we just know all the Asians, right? Um, <laughs> everyone you met, we just seem to know. Certainly within the um, you know, English language media, academia, you know, Cynology, um, community scenes, everyone kind of knows each other. And
0: it is what I believe about yeah. New Zealand, that everybody <laughs> yes, knows everyone, each
2: other. Everyone knows each other. You can just name a famous New Zealander, we will know someone who knows them somehow, or we'll just know them. And that's part of why you know, Anne-Marie Brady was also able to um, effectively campaign for change, because um, once you tap into the networks, everyone knows that something's going down. Uh, everyone can make their own judgments on what they think about it, and then coordinate to kind of push an issue uh, either publicly or behind the scenes to make politicians and decision makers understand that there's something sh- real shady going down and that something needs to be done about it. You know, our smallness is our weakness and our strength.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to compare us with other countries and say whether or not the the impacts of, of foreign influence, foreign interference efforts are being felt more severely. I do think, and we talked about this earlier... The, the history of New Zealand being the first Western nation to sign an agreement, the first Western nation to work in these areas, there is a risk associated with that. If you, you sort of jump in, you don't have time to sit back and think about the pros and the cons and, and what we might need to put in place in terms of safeguards. So in that respect, I think we probably have been... Uh, not as risk-averse as we could have been and certainly far less risk-averse than other countries. And that is starting to change, I think. So there's probably an awareness that we had jumped jumped in, sort of feet first or head first even, and and not taken that time. So I, I think that's something that is starting to change.
0: Perfect. Let's stop there. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I'm Grant Smith, and you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. Editing for this episode was by Andy Hazel. Our theme music is by Susie Ruppens, and our cartoons and gifts
2: are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.